hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I've got a great show for you this week. I'm putting it together from Nassau, the Bahamas, my first trip outside of the United States in over two years. I used to travel anywhere from probably five to 10 times a year academically outside the United States before the pandemic, and things have really changed. Uh, but I'm with my wife, and we're having some great relaxation, but also some work here in the NASA. And those of you who've been following me on Instagram uh, can see that I've been on Guardian Radio 99.6 twice. I went on with uh, Dwight in the morning, and then later on with the Darker Archer show, we had some great feedback. Callers were ca- calling in and really laying it on. They knew that the narrative was not making sense in the Bahamas. They have a much lower fraction of cases of mortalities and actually a lower rate of vaccination here. People are outside, they get a lot of vitamin D, they get a lot of fresh air, uh, thinner and more resilient. And so it's a different vibe down here in terms of pandemic response. I've got uh, several more engagements, including a a reception tonight with the Optimist Group. The Optimist is a uh, collaboration between doctors, ministers, other uh, leaders in the faith community, attorneys, as well as athletes. And it's led by uh, a person of great note down here in the Bahamas. His name is Andy Knowles. He's an Olympic swimmer, and you may recognize that name. He's the father of Jeremy Knowles, who's uh, been an Olympian uh, swimming for the last three Olympics. And uh, you may have seen him, uh, his son, in several finishes. My host down here is Dr. Denotho Archer Cartwright. And I tell you, she is a tremendous leader Uh, The back half of the McCullough Report will feature her and what she's done here uh, for the Bahamian people. I had a chance to visit her clinic firsthand, and I tell you, it was clean. uh, It was uh, well-appointed, and I was very impressed. The staff were very professional. I haven't been down here in about 10 years, and I can tell you, I found the island clean, uh, people very accommodating. Food has been terrific, and we've just had a terrific time. There's been a lot of developments in COVID-19, so let's get to them. Those of you who don't, please follow me at Twitter. My Twitter handle is P underscore um, McCullough MD all together, and you'll find me on Twitter. The correct um, entity has uh, 453,000 followers, and I'm listed as a public figure. I wanted to just give you a few of the headlines that have come up. A paper by Aloha and colleagues from Canada uh, in Ontario has reported a large cohort of Omicron patients. Now, the good news here is that with Omicron, the rates of uh, ICU utilization, hospitalization, and deaths are all less than 1%. In fact, deaths is 0.03%, which is astonishingly low. This is much different than in the Delta. The Delta uh, hospitalizations, 2.8%, ICU admissions, 1.0%, and deaths, 0.5%. So Omicron, markedly uh, less risky. 
and no mention of early treatment. And I would infer that with early treatment, we could get Omicron down to essentially no risk at all to the population. So I wanted to bring that forward. The next paper is by Bar On, B-A-R hyphen On, O-N. That is an Israeli name. His first name is Yanan. And this is from Israel, New England Journal of Medicine. The title of the paper is Protection by a Fourth Dose of uh, the Pfizer Vaccine Against Omicron in Israel. Now, the uh, data uh, always has to be sought, and one can't read the conclusions of the authors and find them trustworthy given the biases towards vaccination worldwide. So I did go to the appendix and pull in the data, and sadly, there are thousands of people now who have taken a fourth dose in Israel and developed the Omicron variant. So the number is, uh, uh, by two weeks after the fourth dose, they had 12,840 cases that were breakthrough through four doses. And then uh, three weeks after the fourth dose, they had 8,926 cases. Um, And I can tell you, these are large numbers for a country the size of Israel. Now, what's important, though, are the severe cases, and particularly those over age 80. And I paid attention to those, and uh, sadly, uh, the rate of all the severe cases, uh, those who are over 80 in Israel, it was uh, 76 out of 125 cases at the two-week mark, and then 61 out of 99 cases at the three-week mark, implying that about two-thirds of the severe cases are in the elderly over age 80, where the vaccines have fully failed them out to four doses. So keep that in mind the next time discussions of boosters and more boosters come up. They simply just don't work against Omicron, and that paper from New England Journal of Medicine uh, indicates that. Uh, the paper uh, that was uh, came out in uh, one of the popular press uh, from the FDA uh, dated April 4th, and the title of the op-ed was Biden administration cuts off 14 more states from Omicron treatment as the BA2 variant spreads. And this is based on modeling. So now uh, the Biden administration has pulled uh, Sochirivimab uh, from GlaxoSmithKline off the uh, market, made it unavailable without clinical data. Uh, and it's just theoretically the, the monoclonal antibodies wouldn't work against the severe Omicron cases. And I've just shared with you there are some severe cases in those over 80, which I would use the medication if it was available. And I made the comment on the Pulse this week with Malcolm out loud that our administration is very quick to pull monoclonal antibodies without any evidence of clinical failure, only based on theoretical modeling, yet with ample evidence of failure of the vaccines. The vaccines as an equal operation warp speed product just like the, vac- just like the uh, monoclonal antibodies are, the vaccines stay on the market with full support, yet treatment that people could need when they're sick are pulled off the market. Yet another example of basically an intentional subversion of treatment in order to push mass vaccination. And I think that is really uh, a sad statement on what our um, administration is doing. Next up is Joe Rogan. Uh, Joe Rogan had on uh, yet another guest, and it was announced on Joe Rogan that there's a Defeat the Mandates rally in Grand Park in L.A. on April 10th, 2022. DefeatTheMandates.com. You can go there and learn more. But Rogan's viewership, uh, again, had this very broad 
um, advertisement for the Defeat the Mandates rally, both doc, myself and Dr. Malone had previously mentioned on the Rogan Experience, uh, the January 23rd rally that was in Washington. Now, next up is a paper by Hernandez Ortiz, uh, and this is published in JAMA Open Network, and this is a Colombian outbreak of the Mu variant, MU variant of COVID-19. And uh, the news here is that the Mu variant was an outbreak that was completely understood to be unresponsive to the vaccines. So there was no debate here. The vaccines did not touch the Mu variant. And this outbreak came and went. It literally blasted off in May of 2021. It was over with by September of 2021. It was a tall peak, no doubt about it. The uh, risk of hospitalization here with the Mu variant was 11.1%, and the death rate was 11, uh, I'm sorry, the hospitalization rate was 13.1%, the death rate was 11.7%. So this was a substantial outbreak, but the reason why I highlighted it on my Twitter feed is to make the case that these outbreaks come and go and they do dissipate and burn themselves out uh, in the absence of mass vaccination. Next up is a paper by Natino and colleagues, N-I-T-T-I-N-O, published in JAMA. This is a research letter. The title of the paper is Association Between SARS-CoV-2 Viral Load in Wastewater, Reported Cases, Hospitalizations, and Vaccinations in Milan, Italy in March of 2020. And it just is making the point you can actually measure the virus as it comes out through stool uh, and probably urine in wastewater. And so as a proxy for how much viral burden there is, uh, one of the things the authors do though is they make a stretch and try to imply that vaccination somehow was influencing the amount of virus in the water supply. And I made the comment that, good grief, we don't even have randomized trial data suggesting the vaccines do anything for hospitalization and death as important endpoints. Do we have to, to dig into uh, observational studies of wastewater to try to uh, contrive a, a benefit for mass vaccination. It just seems to be a reach and it, it looks like there's no limits to those who want to try to show the vaccinations are doing something when indeed they're not. Next up is an announcement by the North Carolina Physicians for Freedom uh, collaboration. I will be hosting a first annual Making Medical History celebration with Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson on May 1st at noon. Uh, and this will be in Raleigh, Durham. So look for the North Carolina Physicians for Freedom group. And again, this is on my Twitter feed. I was thrilled to put this up for the public to see. Uh, and it's a letter dated March 31st, 2022 by COVID-19 leader, Dr. Mark Steffen, uh, out of his office in Hutchinson, Kansas. And this is a Senate letter that says, Dear Healthcare Provider, as we have struggled mightily over the last two years responding to COVID virus, one issue of particular importance has become indelibly clear. Passive early treatment of COVID infection is no longer uh, acceptable as a standard of care. The standard of care is early treatment with FDA-approved medications, regardless of their labeling uses. Delays in the institution of these treatments are no longer acceptable. And he goes on in the letter to basically say, listen, if doctors in Kansas aren't going to treat COVID-19, this represents failure to treat and is considered wanton disregard for people's health. And this is basically putting doctors on notice. If you don't start treating COVID-19, essentially doctors are, treat, are uh, committing uh, malpractice. 
Now, there's been great discussion about the TOGETHER trial. The TOGETHER trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, first author is Rees, R-E-I-S, and colleagues. It uh, was one of the ivermectin clinical trials, and uh, it involved uh, uh, approximately uh, 1,358 individuals. So it's a small clinical trial. Remember, a large definitive trial in COVID-19 would be 20,000 to 40,000 patients. This is a small underpowered trial. They used ivermectin, 400 micrograms per kilogram for three days, pretty late into the course. 75% uh, of people were still PCR positive at seven days uh, into treatment. Uh, there was a 12% relative risk reduction for ivermectin that did not meet statistical significance, and there were no safety data um, presented. Uh, there was about a 16% relative risk reduction for hospitalization. So I can tell you the TOGETHER trial, in my view, represents another signal of benefit with no mention of safety, but known to have a previously uh, well-accepted and well-characterized safety profile, so we know ivermectin is safe. And this goes along with about uh, 35 other randomized trials of ivermectin. It's, it's not a deal breaker. Uh, TOGETHER trial was put out in the media that, aha, this is the finally the trial that um, that sh demonstrates ivermectin does not work for COVID-19. And in fact, the conclusions are just the opposite of what the data show. So I show you the outcomes in the data table, table two in my Twitter feed. Go ahead and take a look at it. It's right there uh, for you to see. Uh, another New England Journal of Medicine paper by Price and colleagues, a case control study, evaluated uh, the Pfizer vaccine protection against Omicron variant in children and adolescents. And again, using case control methodology, which is not randomized trial data in ages uh, 5 to 11, adoles adolescents 12 to 18, uh, demonstrated that uh, the rates of uh, what they call critical COVID-19 in this group. Now, interestingly, about 30% of these children were previously hospitalized in the last year. So as a proxy, they must have chronic medical problems like cystic fibrosis or other forms of lung disease um, or other congenital abnormalities. So uh, the rates of critical COVID-19 over the uh, course of observation, unvaccinated, 16%, um, fully vaccinated, uh, 22%. Death uh, from discharge from the hospital, unvaccinated, was uh, uh, way less than 1%, and for fully vaccinated, zero. And then for adolescents 12 to 18, the rates of um, critical COVID, 29% in the unvaccinated, 14% in fully vaccinated. Death before discharge from hospital was 1% uh, in the unvaccinated, 2% in the fully vaccinated group. Uh, you know, these are very modest outcomes. Maybe there's an edge in adolescents 12 to 18, again, sick enough to be hospitalized in the prior year for other reasons uh, to be vaccinated against the Omicron variant. But one would think, listen, if there are not large numbers of hospitalizations and deaths, why risk the safety uh, data with the vaccination, including myocarditis, thromboses, and, um, and other developments? I wanted to uh, give you just one more paper uh, before we get to the next segment. And this is by Wisniewski and colleagues, published in JAMA. And uh, it indicates outcomes after SARS-CoV-2 vaccination among children with a history of multi-system inflammatory 
syndrome. So here's a paper uh, that, in my view, actually does something unethical. So there's children who, with COVID-19, the respiratory illness, develop a multi-system inflammatory syndrome afterwards, where they get pretty sick. There's lung, uh, liver, kidney, and heart dysfunction or injury. That's the reason why it's called multi-system inflammatory disorder. So they're pretty sick to begin with. And then they are uh, given a vaccine afterwards. Now they've already had COVID, so the vaccine is not indicated. And what happened here is that once they take the vaccine, uh, there is cardiac involvement indicated by a troponin elevation in 93% uh, of uh, individuals. This is with the original MISC syndrome, 73% presented with shock. They only had follow-up data on three children by review of the medical record. I think this is dangerous. Listen, they were sick enough to have evidence of heart injury and be in shock to begin with. The last thing you want to do is give them a vaccine and not have adequate follow-up. So uh, sometimes this makes it all the way to the medical literature where we think uh, that, in fact, that uh, malpractice is being done. Uh, remember, the vaccines are not indicated for people who have already had COVID-19 and certainly shouldn't be used in those who um, have had a serious COVID manifestation like multi-system uh, inflammatory disorder. So that's a quick review of what's up on my Twitter feed so you can see this. Uh, we've got some great music suggestions come into the McCullough Report. So let me get organized with teeing up the first contribution. The first piece came in by Danielle Curley, and uh, it's on an album called Heart of Orion, and uh, that music label is called Heart of Orion Music. And uh, she sent it to me because the music is actually, the title of it's called Let's Get Loud. And so I, what I want to know from you is, uh, should this be actually uh, now become the new theme song for the McCullough Report? So let me know. Gather, gather all. 
So that's Let's Get Loud, Heart of Orion Music. That is the label. And it came in from the original artist herself, Diane uh, Danielle Curley. So it's always fun when the artists themselves, they're listening to the McCullough Report and they uh, basically say, listen, Dr. McCullough, this uh, uh, you know sounds like this could make a, a fit for the program. So let me know about the, uh, uh, the Out Loud Music by Heart of Orion label. Now the next uh, music suggestion, this will be the last one I have for this segment of the McCullough Report, came in from Duff Kelly from Canada and the the title of the piece is wicked people and duff has gone to the extra effort of actually making a cartoon animation that goes with this on youtube so i'll give the link to the youtube cartoon uh, animation but it shows children and depicts uh, really this wicked thing that's happening to children during the pandemic response so let's listen to duff kelly and wicked people
Wow, I tell you, that was really something else. You have to watch the animation. It gets a little spooky at the end, uh, but it depicts a child in a future world where uh, you know the children are in bubbles and it just keeps going and going and the child gets uh, punished by vaccination in the end. And so uh, I think Duff Kelly really went wild with the animation afterwards. The music was great, but take a look at it. It was on YouTube. Uh, as I've mentioned, we've got a terrific program this week from Nassau, the Bahamas, and our guest on the other side of the McCullough Report, Dr. Denothra Archer Cartwright, a family physician trained in the West Indies and in the Bahamas. She is the lady of the archipelago here, and she is heavily sought out and is the emotional and spiritual leader of the Optimist Group. Optimist Group is a group of doctors, uh, clergymen, leaders of faith, lawyers, and other concerned citizens, heavily organized and bolstered by former Olympian Andy Knowles. And you recognize his name because his son Jeremy is uh, a multi-participant uh, uh, Olympian uh, in the uh, Olympic swimming uh, arena. So this is going to be a terrific show on the back half. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. The Genesis Fogger. Let me tell you, this is an innovation. The Genesis Fogger uses HOCl. This is a form of hypochlorite. This is a powerful disinfectant uh, that is tried and true. It's for sure kills SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 virus, but many other pathogens, including bacterial as well as uh, mycofungal pathogens. And so this is terribly important in households, particularly where there's a lot of traffic. There's opportunities for dust mites, opportunities for spores uh, and other uh, my microbes to invade your life. If you've ever had uh, someone sick in your home, a senior, for instance, they're at risk for uh, Clostridium difficile, um, enterocolitis, as well as uh, staphylococcal infections. Clearly, COVID-19 is a chronic threat uh, in and out of our households with vulnerable individuals. Enter the Genesis Fogger. This fogger is uh, in a, uh, a gray base and uh, it plugs in. And once you do the mixture in the tank, it's got a huge tank, so you don't have to keep refilling it. And do the settings and let it do its job. Turn on the fogger. It is a powerful mister. It's a dry mist, and it does cleanse the air. It does uh, have an, a tremendous uh, disinfectant capability for the room. It's used for industrial purposes uh, and elsewhere, but now it's brought to you in your home to better defend you against SARS-CoV-2, the virus, COVID-19, as well as a host of other pathogens. You can uh, uh, bring it around to different rooms and treat different rooms with the Genesis Fogger systematically, just like you would clean your rooms in terms of household cleaning. But in this case, you're disinfecting the rooms with the Genesis Fogger. So if you go to uh, the uh, promotional code and enter in out loud, you can receive a discount off of your first purchase. So go to the Genesis Fogger website and take a look at it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best. Freedom lies in being bold. 
Well, for six incredible years, Bold is America Out Loud. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. You've been in that situation. The person next to you is sniffling, or worse yet, <coughs> coughing. Flu, cold, and SARS-CoV-2 are everywhere. Would you like an additional layer of protection to reduce these threats with an invisible mask? Sold by hundreds of pharmacists and medical doctors, our American-made povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray, Cofix RX, lasts for hours deactivating viruses and germs that make us sick. Find a retailer near you or buy online at cofixrx.com. America Out Loud listeners use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. I want to put in a big word for healthy cell supplements. The GI tract is not functioning normally in long COVID syndrome. I'm convinced of it. There are multiple studies. We need a much better absorbed set of nutraceutical and vitamin products for long COVID syndrome, and that's healthy cell. They have an entire line that's safe and effective, uh, can help people through the long COVID syndrome. I found the best way to use healthy cell products is use them every day, not on and off, on and off. Take them every day consistently. The immune super boost, focus and memory, and the REM sleep supplement all have powerful effects in long COVID syndrome. Go to HealthyCell.com and in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Today, I'm on site in Nassau, Bahamas, uh, doing an exciting program with Dr. Denothra Archer Cartwright. Now, Dr. Archer Cartwright went to undergraduate at the University of Trent outside Toronto, Ontario. She then went on to the University of West Indies and received her MBBS and then returned to her homeland, the Bahamas, and trained in family medicine and received a DM, a doctor of medicine uh, designation in family medicine. And she is a leading primary care doctor here in the Bahamas. And she has taken up the issue with so many doctors that we have interviewed on the McCullough Report regarding COVID-19. So she has not uh, pushed COVID-19 to the side or let other doctors uh, deal with this issue. She's taken it head on. And I'm working with her this week to bring information to the Bahamian people, the archipelago, 700 islands, 17 of which are populated. And uh, this is a wonderfully diverse population. And I've learned a lot about uh, medicine down here since I've been here. So it's my great pleasure to bring her on the show and introduce her to the McCullough Report audience and have her give us an update on where we are with COVID-19 here in the archipelago. Dr. Uh, Archer Cartwright, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Thank you for having me on your show, and thank you for being here in the Bahamas with us. Well, tell us about this week and what you've organized for the people here, for myself and other doctors involved in the series of programs that is under this umbrella called Optimist. Yes, so um, I'm here in the Bahamas. We are still kind of dealing with a lot of the COVID restrictions. Even though we have fairly low numbers, we've been in the teens or the single digits for the last few months. And uh, we have just been always looking at uh, 
looking at medicine and how we can treat early. Uh, early treatment has been something that uh, quite a few doctors have been interested in, but overall, nationally, we don't have a early treatment program. And so it was really interesting to see Dr. McCullough, who uh, pretty much started his program very early out, had it published, uh, and was out there just doing the work and reading the, the studies and keeping up for COVID and providing such vital information that a lot of Bahamians were actually tapping into the things that he was talking about. So we felt that uh, he was really on the same journey as us. Uh, he had a similar uh, way of dealing with COVID and he had a, an open mind on how to deal with it in terms of policy, uh, early treatment, and even with the vaccines, uh, which we weren't getting um, you know, from a lot of different people here. So the group Optimus had formed earlier uh, last year just to kind of tackle these topics and to keep them uh, in the mainstream because there wasn't a lot of discussion about early treatment. And so uh, we thought it was really great if we could get Dr. McCullough to come down here to, to be a part of what we were doing and spread the message, educate the Bahamian people, and so they can get access to some of the information that they may not have had, especially in making decisions about vaccines. And what does Optimus stand for? Well, uh, it, it is an acronym, which is pretty long. I don't have it in front of me. But uh, it basically, it is a group of uh, doctors, lawyers, professionals all over the Bahamas that came together to focus on early treatment modalities. And also, uh, it, it was formed because there was this kind of hovering mandates that were happening. And some of these things were placed in law. So we really think we needed to have a strong group of people who really understood what was going on to kind of stand up for the general population in this regard. So 400,000 inhabitants of the Bahamas. How many cases of COVID-19 have you had and how many deaths? It's just what are the roundabout right. numbers? Uh, we, we, I think we're closer to about 900 deaths uh, with the last set of numbers. And overall, there's been about 32,000 people who have had COVID in the country recorded cases. Uh, so we're around about 2%, uh, a little less than 2%. We were kind of averaging throughout, even, even, at, even at our peak. We did have a peak where a lot of those deaths happened. And then the rest of it kind of was, uh, you know, lot, not a high number. So that was in August of last year. We, we had our largest peak. And so we, we kind of saw the waves like other countries where there was a, where it kind of went up and then it went down. And, uh, you know, people were really afraid of what was going on and we were all in lockdowns for quite a bit. So uh, the numbers, we were seeing them every single day. So for the Bahamas, that, that's a fairly large number uh, when we look at the, the 900 number. But do you think the number of cases is accurate or do you think mm -hmm. it's an underrepresentation or overrepresentation? Definitely an underrepresentation because I can say for myself, uh, early in the pandemic, I was traveling, I was in Boston, and we were coming back very early when we had our first case. And our prime minister at the time, he locked down with the very first case. And so me and my husband were like, how are we going to get back? When we came back, uh, at that time, there wasn't really any testing being done. So nobody was really testing. They were just telling people to quarantine. So I think we had a large number of people who never got a test, uh, who were just being told to stay home with COVID or if they suspected to have COVID because they didn't want them coming to the hospital or coming to the medical facilities. And so for a large portion of the pandemic, there was no testing available or very limited testing available. And so I'm sure that that number is probably double or triple uh, because even when we did have testing, there were people who uh, refused to do the test. 
So that is more cohesive. I uh, have a number in my mind in 330 million Americans, the CDC by October of 2021 estimated 146 million people had had COVID-19. If you go to Worldometer, uh, which is a, a different you know counting system, they rely on other data, they estimate of the hard confirmed cases at 80 um, um, million uh, Americans having it. And, and why the discrepancy? Because the CDC bakes in these calculations that there are people who have it and don't mm -hmm. get a test. I had an interesting question today, which will come out on the Pulse this week. And the question was, uh, do you think reductions in cases now in the United States are related, are related to um, the use of home testing, which is not government reported? Mm -hmm. So you can actually go to a pharmacy in the United States and buy a home test and do it yourself. And, it, and if it's positive, uh, let's say get treatment or get through the uh, illness expectantly. And it's no government reporting. Do you have these over-the-counter tests here? Well, some people are doing the, the over-the-counter tests. And then the other thing is when the antigen tests came into play, a lot of people were uh, kind of not doing the PCR. They were doing the antigen and they weren't doing any follow-up to see if that was really like a, a true positive. So you had a uh, uh, a period of time where people were kind of just doing an antigen and taking it upon themselves that hey I do or I don't have COVID and there wasn't a lot of guidance uh, for a lot of the testing facilities or the Bahamian public on on what they would to do if they got a positive antigen test so that was kind of in the air that was not being recorded in any particular way and so I think there's a really large population of people that did not test who may have been positive even in a family, if one person was positive, they were actually saying, don't test the rest of the family, just go and quarantine or isolate. And so you would have had one person might have been in the home with five or more people. Who were sick. Who were so, so the idea of one person case positive was mm -hmm. a proxy for the whole family. In the a lot of cases, unless that person really developed like severe symptoms and had to go to the hospital. Right. But the Chinese had published, and there was also data from New York State, as I recall, that indicated that 85% of the spread occurs within the home. So if somebody has the characteristic signs and symptoms and they test positive, it's a reasonable assumption mm -hmm. that, in fact, the rest of the family has the illness. And there probably is no downside to under undercounting the cases because really what matters are those in the hospital and obviously those who die. So tell me a little bit about hospital care in the Bahamas. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's really kind of interesting. Um, so the approach was that we had locked down initially because we didn't have the capacity we felt in order to deal with all the cases of COVID. And so they really limited uh, persons going to the hospital and this was very chaotic for quite a few months because you had people with a lot of other problems who couldn't get access to the care. And even people who were confirmed with COVID, if they didn't have severe COVID, they were being turned away. And so we struggled for quite a while with bad space uh, and just shortages. Uh, we've always had issues with our nurses going to the U.S. and Canada and other places. And so uh, they were getting a lot of opportunities. So we, we were losing staff as well. So it was a, it was a difficult time in, in that sense. What we were looking for as the Bahamian people was uh, an expansion of our, our services so that we could tackle it. And that's what we were promised. That's why a lot of people... Uh, willingly did the lockdowns because we thought, hey, we're going to give uh, time for this to be improved, for the hospital to be improved. We've been talking about hospital improvements for a very long time. We only have one government main 
primary hospital on our capital city. There is a private hospital as well, uh, but it's very costly. So you're talking about on the main island, two, three hundred thousand people only having this one um, main hospital to go to. And there is a hospital on um, Freeport, which is another island, which could help uh, with that. But all the other smaller islands, people actually had to come from those islands if they needed care. Uh, so I, I would say that it was not really well organized in the very beginning. And eventually we did get help from some people who were uh, volunteering their services here in the country. Uh, from the time of uh, the hurricane because we get hurricanes around here. So we had uh, different organizations that were here helping people adjust with that and eventually they kind of helped and brought in some tents and stuff like that. So that part was very chaotic and I think that's why people were very fearful because our healthcare system in that capacity wasn't up to scratch from prior and here we are facing something brand new. But I have to tell you, though, uh, 17 islands where, where it's inhabited, mm -hmm. and you only have two islands that have hospitals, right? Right, And then trying to either ferry people or helicopter them between the islands, uh, you know, we don't have anything like that in the United States. We have uh, a few um, islands, we have the San Juan Islands in the Pacific Northwest, and we have uh, some other remote areas in the United States, but by and large, you know, we're a land Mm -hmm. uh, country and we move people around uh, by land. It sounds like honestly you, you've done uh, very well, all things uh, considered. Now, um, do you have the full range of treatments available here? Monoclonal antibodies, Pfizer, Merck drugs, right. uh, use of drugs in the hospital, steroids, etc. Yeah, I'm out of the hospital now, but. Um, they, they were using steroids throughout the pandemic quite a bit. Um, we tried to get the monoclonal antibodies in. We had difficulty because we were trying to source them from the United States. I think also one of the, the private hospital tried to do that as well. I don't think they had a lot of success with it. By the time they may have sourced it, I think uh, the original one wasn't being circulated as often. Um, so we didn't have the monoclonal antibodies. Uh, we actually, uh, so they were they were kind of kind of piecing together their treatment program, and there was also a lot of use of remdesivir um, inside the hospital itself. Uh, but there there was no other really kind of stringent protocol that was in place. They were kind of throwing the kitchen sink at individuals in a lot of cases. And. Uh Hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, are they prescription or over-the-counter? So they're, they're prescription drugs here. And uh, first, it was kind of liberal. There were different doctors that were prescribing different um, versions of different protocols, probably including your protocol and um, frontline doctors, their protocol. Um, but as time went on, as we got into the pandemic, uh, people started feeding these rumors about these drugs and there was a lot of uh, crackdown on uh, the pharmacies and prescribing them. And uh, it, it was just kind of up in the air for a while. So some doctors were still kind of doing it and then, uh, but they were also kind of like being warned, you know, maybe you shouldn't be prescribing it. And uh, it kind of went underground, I think for a little bit. Yeah, people would even bring it in from the United States. And so, um, some pharmacists were kind of uh, afraid to release the drug and there was some problems with that. So there wasn't always access to those drugs. So the same things that happened in the United States mm -hmm. through this kind of fear-driven 
period. Just to give you an update in the United States, we've now had several states come in with strong legislation demanding that the uh, pharmacists dispense hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and for that matter, uh, Pfizer, uh, Paxilvoid, and Moldapiravir from Merck. But also, we have one state in the United States that now it's over-the-counter ivermectin, and that's New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. So it's over-the-counter as it would be in uh, India right. or Mexico or or elsewhere. How about the use of uh, virucidal treatment using povidone iodine, glucose iodine, hydrogen peroxide, things to actually mm -hmm. sniff up in the nose and then right. spit out. Is that done um, down here? Uh, it, I, I don't know. Largely, uh, individually, doctors who were doing a lot of because only some doctors um, like myself and other doctors were actually taking on patients who had early COVID. A lot of Persons were being told, just go home, you know, take something, and then if you, you're short of breath, then come back to us. Uh, so I, I, I've been openly doing a lot of different things. Um, so th there were a few pockets of doctors here and there that were doing it, and I think that nasal washes are a part of certain some people's protocols. And I visited, had a chance to visit your clinic today, which is really beautiful. It was Thank you. clean and uh, very accommodating. It, it was every bit as professional as any American office. Were you seeing COVID patients directly or were you doing it largely by the phone? Uh, so by the phone, um, we did some Zoom patients. Uh, we weren't really bringing them in the office. Uh, there was a lot of fear in the Bahamas. <laughs> you know, they were not really letting people in. You had to be screened. So you, people with COVID were not being brought into clinic settings. We were not being brought into primary care settings um, unless there were doctors that were going out to them. So I'm also a concierge physician. And so uh, that's how I ended up doing quite a few consultations with people uh, and doing some Zoom con um, consultations with patients that weren't extremely ill. There were some doctors that were going to people's houses even when they were ill um, and taking precautions, of course. But uh, a lot of people were left out on their own mm -hmm. to kind of uh, just make it through and, and hope for the best. That's very similar to the United States. So we had the vast majority of doctors like the American Frontline Doctors and uh, Frontline Critical Care uh, Consortium, FLCC. Uh, that's largely telemedicine. MyFreeDoctor.com is largely telemedicine. But we had uh, uh, Brian Tyson, George Freed in South Central California. That was all direct care. They, they saw them in an outside tent. Uh, they, you know, it's been videos of this, how they right. did their testing outside and they took care of them. Uh, I was in, involved with a, a program that we've now published, Dr. Sidney Ante from Texas A&M, the southern uh, branch, where a, a Honduran project, and it was all done outside. Yes. Did, Dr. Didier Rialt in France, in Marseille, southern France, set up a tent outside the hospital and uh, did it outside. You know, one of my theories uh, why the Caribbean has not been ravaged by COVID, as New York was and Milan in Wuhan is because people are outside yeah and uh, you know you get a lot of sunlight you get a lot of vitamin D conversion but people are outside you tend to eat outside last night when we were out you know we have fresh air right and there's data from uh, Singapore and elsewhere that really studied transmission it basically doesn't occur outside yeah and I I was telling people throughout because you know I also host a show down here uh, when they were talking about vitamin D. So vitamin D did become a popular supplement here. And I'm like, we are in the Sun Belt. I mean, you can you can go outside and just spend 15 minutes every other day and you're going to get some vitamin D. So 
just going outside is going to be very helpful. Uh, I think where a lot of people got impacted was because of the lockdowns. You could only go out at certain times. And so it became very restricting for a lot of people. Um, but yes, we, we have so much sunshine here. It's almost sunshine almost every day here, even in our, our so-called winter in this country. It's warm and sunny. <laughs> so uh, I think that was a really big part of it. And what I would have loved to see is us encouraging those things more often rather than um, having people stay inside so much. So the parks were closed, the beaches were closed for a big part of the pandemic. And uh, recently, we're just really opening up uh, like the end of last year. Now, in the harbor today, I saw three gigantic cruise ships. I mean, these cruise ships uh, are like floating buildings at this point in time, and they hold thousands and thousands of passengers. Uh, did, uh, did any of the ports here in the Bahamas field any of these cruise bro- uh, boat outbreaks? Um, I think there might have been one or two off from us, but we, we didn't actually get many out, large outbreaks ourselves because the cruise ship uh, industry was kind of closed down for quite some time. Uh, then they started kind of opening back up slowly. They had a few little hiccups where there were persons on the ships that were positive, but we weren't really open for quite a while. So we didn't really get the, that whole thing where there were large outbreaks on ships that were uh, affected by us because we were essentially closed. Did you have any hospital outbreaks of the workers in the hospital? Um, yes. Initially, uh, one of the first uh, analysis that was done, because we didn't get a lot of analysis, but one of the first analysis that they did do when they were looking at clusters, quite a bit of it was coming from either the hospital, uh, people catching it there, or uh, some of the essential workers who were out in the public, because everyone else was locked down pretty much for some of that time. And so we were able to see that that, that some of that was happening um, in there. Uh, I remember you mentioning that you didn't have much hospital outbreaks, but we did have a lot of the, the staff that was coming down. So that was a problem because we already have shortages. So they were in and out, in and out, in and out of uh, working for quite some time. Okay. Well, let's in the last part of this, let's turn our attention to the vaccines. Mm. So what vaccines uh, are available here in the Bahamas and when did they become available and how's the program going? Right. Uh, We started out actually with AstraZeneca and that was early, maybe March of last year. And uh, Bahamian people kind of complained a little bit about that because of the sourcing of it. Um, Initially, the government had said that they were going to purchase through the WHO and PAHO. Uh, They ended up getting a donation from India. And so Bahamians were kind of like, why why is it being donated? Didn't you say you spent some money? And they they were kind of cautious about that. So it didn't go over very well for the, the government at the time that it was a donated batch. But they had that, they were promoting that. Eventually, uh, they got some Johnson & Johnson, they got Pfizer, um, they got some Moderna. Uh, Johnson & Johnson was a little bit popular in the beginning for those who wanted to get vaccinated because it was one shot. What you find is there was a group, there was a small group of people who really wanted to be vaccinated, but a large portion of the Bahamian population didn't really want to get vaccinated. So it was a lot of, you know, putting it in there for your job and for different things. They started attaching contracts to it. Uh, so you had more and more people over time starting to get some of these um, vaccinations. Um, 
Johnson and Johnson kind of lost its popularity later in after what we were seeing in the states after it was related to uh, the clots and stuff like that. So people started getting like they didn't want the Johnson and Johnson. They started going more for the Pfizer um, shot, and then they were pushing Pfizer towards younger people. So that uh, Pfizer really got we got a lot of donations from the United States, kind of providing uh, Pfizer for us. Did anybody here have to pay for a vaccine? Any? No, moment? it was all free. It was all free. It was all administered through our government. Uh, it was not even done like, you know, in the United States, I believe you can get your vaccination in um, a pharmacy or in an office. So it was done strictly by the government. So government vaccine centers. Mm-hmm. So not in private doctor's offices, not in pharmacies. And... Um, what has been the reaction from Bahamians uh, to some of these uh, news stories? Like, for instance, the Miami Open tennis tournament. We've had 15 tennis players can't finish the tournament. The tournament demanded everybody be fully vaccinated. And again, we're worried about whether the vaccine has just had a, a neuromuscular effect or if it's myocarditis or, or pulmonary emboli or general inanition, uh, you know, some reason. I mean, it's so distinctly unusual to have 15 tennis players not finish a tennis tournament, of which they, they train for uh, for months, if not years. We've had, uh, I think, over 600 European soccer players, football players, rugby players have uh, cardiac arrests and need resuscitation. And the, the, um, the stories go on and on. Do these stories resonate down here I see young people out in the streets they look athletic mm-hmm. uh, you know the the population here looks vibrant do they resonate or are they insulated from hearing this um, I, I don't think they're getting a lot of that because uh, I, I know that in the US there's a lot of censorship and so it's like censorship uh, even uh, squared down here so by the time that news filters over here a lot of people aren't getting that unless they're looking for additional information so you have a, a part of the population who's kind of really out there researching, looking at COVID, and then you have the mass majority that are just getting mainstream media news. So uh, a lot of people will not be aware of those types of things. They wouldn't even have a chance at hearing it. They wouldn't have a chance at hearing it. Now, we're in the offices of The Guardian. Now, The Guardian's both a radio station. It's also a print newspaper. It seems uh, prominent. We were on with one of the... Uh, radio broadcasters uh, this morning, uh, Dwight, a a wonderful young man. Uh, Has The Guardian ever had a a print story about vaccine side effects, or is The Guardian radio show itself, not your show, but the radio show, have they ever covered vaccine side effects? Uh, There hasn't been a lot of talk in general in the Bahamas about uh, side effects. It's almost like a... (laughs) Uh, like a hush hush uh we just don't talk about it it's just not talked about i think uh on my show we talked about myocarditis and some of the effects that were with young uh, men especially because i thought that was very important because it was a large push especially for our athletes to be vaccinated and so but other than a few pockets here and there there really hasn't been a lot of talk about it at all it's almost as it doesn't exist so what you have is people talking amongst themselves perhaps coming to their doctor with a problem and how is uh, the vaccine referred to by the medical society something you told me today 
struck it. It's almost as if the vaccine itself has taken it's, on a persona. It's like a person because I know um, when when they wrote to us, uh, I I felt almost like it was a personal attachment to the vaccine, which was a very strange thing for any kind of drug. Uh, and so that that made me kind of cautious and wary of like what were we thinking in terms of the vaccination. Um, but yeah, it almost like the vaccine is a person not to be talked about, not to be insulted, uh, but to kind of be left alone on his pedestal. That is so interesting. Almost like the vaccine is some type of idol that cannot uh, cannot uh, be discussed or certainly its flaws can't be uh, brought yeah. forward. Well, I tell you, this has been a, a fantastic interview. It's great to be down here in the Bahamas, get uh, just a little bit of rest. So many of the listeners asked, just so you know, I just went jogging on the beach, everybody. I feel great. I'm all showered up. Going to have a late dinner after our program tonight. Dr. Uh, Archer Cartwright and her husband and everyone down here has been absolutely fantastic. Um, doctor, do you have any final comments for our audience? Uh, yes, I just want to end with a moment of hope that you know there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think people are waking up to the situation and you know requiring more information and wanting to know more because we don't want to be in this predicament in another five or ten years when anything else comes up. So uh, we, we have to be prepared, we have to be vigilant. Uh, those of us who are kind of working for this better view of the world and how we take care of things, uh, it's time for us to just be courageous and stand up and you know help each other. I tell you, those are terrific words, and I'll let them be the last words on the McCullough Report. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Mm-hmm.